Awesome. Well, after waiting the, the required two minutes, um, we'll get started. Um, I'm so just like so thrilled and excited to be here today and to be part of this conversation. And I, I think that's probably going to come across in a variety of different ways. Um, but my name is Kendra Albert. I'm the director of the Initiative for Representative First Amendment, which is a joint product project of the Cyberlaw Clinic and the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Um, and this is the first of what, what we hope will be many conversations um, about sort of the First Amendment, critical race theory, um, and how we can sort of better understand sort of free expression as something that's in the US at least intimately connected with race and other axes of um, oppression. Um, and for that, I'm super excited to have Justin and Khaled here. Um, I'll introduce them by reading their bios and then we're gonna dive right into it. So they'll, I'll ask them some questions about their work and their thinking, hopefully they'll uh, riff on each other and no doubt say brilliant things um, and then sort of Partway through, we'll turn over and, and uh, to sort of questions that you might have about either their work um, or sort of their thinking in this space um, more generally. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention now, as I will again at the end, um, that uh, applications for our uh, initiative for a representative First Amendment fellowship, where we uh, provide law students from backgrounds underrepresented in First Amendment law with um, money to uh, spend a summer at a uh, law school clinic um, are open now until next Monday, January 11th. Um, so if you're a law student and you're interested at all in the work that we're talking about here, please, please apply. We'd love to uh, love to get to know you. Um, so without further ado, um, Justin Hansford is a Howard University School of Law professor of law and executive director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center. Um, Professor Hansford was previously a Democracy Project Fellow at Harvard University, um, which I believe I've heard of, um, a visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, and an associate professor of law at St. Louis University. Um, he has a BA from Howard University and a JD from Georgetown University Law Center, where he was the founder of the Georgetown Journal of Law and Modern Critical Race Perspectives. Um, and I'm also thrilled to be joined by uh, Khaled Beydoun, um, a leading thinker on national security, civil rights, and constitutional law. And not I didn't just steal that off uh, his bio on his website. I also believe that. Um, he has published a series of books, including the critically claimed American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. Um, and his insights have been featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, he serves as a law professor at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville School of Law and senior affiliated faculty at UC Berkeley. Um, so yeah, incredible thinkers, um, a great topic, um, and me, your you know, humble moderator. Um, so let's start a little bit um, with sort of uh, your work, Justin. Um, my introduction to your work in this space was your incredible piece on the First Amendment and freedom of assembly as a racial project. Um, and in it, you argue, I'm just going to quote you, um, uh, that the First Amendment's past and present has proven that it is a racial project that redistributes the freedom of assembly to whites and away from blacks. Can you tell us about how you came to write that article and what that sort of investigation of the First Amendment's past taught you? Certainly. Well, thank you for inviting me, first of all. I'm really excited to be able to have this conversation with uh, you all scholars, I really respect a great deal. And of course, my friend Khalid. Uh, for me, this entrance into the exploration of how the First Amendment uh, has been uh, inter interrelated to the question of race uh, throughout history really came first with me happening to, happening to live 10 minutes away from where Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson while I was a professor at St. Louis University. And I showed up and uh, tried to help the people there. I, I was a member of the Maryland bar, but not the Missouri bar. So I, I was sort of stuck trying to find ways to think about how the law could be helpful outside of simply filing a, a lawsuit or um, representing someone. And, and I started to have these conversations with people who consider themselves movement lawyers who really try to find ways to uphold the power of movements and specifically protesters um, using the law and doing so in a way that in, in 
uh, involves integrated advocacy is a term we use for different, different types of understandings of how the law can be helpful. In that process, I started to learn more about the First Amendment. Really, I was upset, to be honest, I was mad because of how horribly the protesters in Ferguson were treated. I'm sure everybody remembers the tanks on the street, the tear gas uh, from 2014. We saw a replay of that in 2020, this piece that you referenced, uh, first, the First Amendment as, uh, uh, the First Amendment freedom of assembly of, as a racial project was written before, of course, what happened this past year. But, we, but you saw in the headlines, you might've seen it on Twitter, people again were outraged by the treatment of the protesters and even more recently, uh, in December of 2020, you might have seen in November of 2020, you might have seen the response to how uh, how much of a contrast there was between the way that the uh, white supremacist groups, the Proud Boys, and other groups were treated by police. They uh, came out to exercise their their freedom of speech. And so that, that but that uh, narrative is one that is very much prevalent uh, right now, as, as we were talking before the event, right now we have Proud Boys assembling here in uh, Washington, DC. They've made very clear that they plan to carry firearms and break all types of laws. But, you know, we haven't seen the same types of responses. So, so that caused me to think about uh, this idea of the freedom of assembly as a racial project understanding a racial project basically to mean any, any uh, endeavor that creates a hierarchy on the grounds of race uh, in the tradition of enslavement and Jim Crow and other types of uh, ugly parts of our history, our constitutional history, in fact, that have allowed that type of hierarchy to endure. And it was, and you could, it's really almost a, uh, you know, empirical project, if you will, you could just take a look at the different outcomes and as a critical race theorist, you know, we don't, we, we try to understand the law from the legal realist position of looking at the outcomes and then thinking backwards, right? So we don't, you know, we, there's a lot of rhetoric about American exceptionalism and how the First Amendment is the crown jewel of that exceptionalism, how it applies equally to everybody and all these things. But when we actually start to look at the outcomes and start reasoning backwards, from the outcomes as legal realists, uh, we see the clear uh, distinction there. And uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because race has been, and specific, particularly the black liberation struggle has been central to the construction of first amendment law in many ways. Um, one of my mentors, Cheryl Harris is always talking about the mutually constitutive nature of race in the law, meaning that the, questions of race are impacted by legal decisions and statutes and uh, legal uh, uh, legal um, power being used against communities of color, but also the actions of people fighting for racial justice has over time <clears throat> helped to shape different elements of the law. The First Amendment is actually a core example of that. You think of uh, you know some of the most important cases in the First Amendment. Uh, of course, New York Times for Sullivan is the one that people may think of first, first of all, Martin Luther King and you know, the freedom of the press. But even if you think about um, some of the important cases around the First Amendment freedom of association, um, and of course, you, you could even go to first, the First Amendment freedom of assembly, all of these areas of law were impacted by what happened during the civil rights movement. And the, the Supreme Court opinions that regulate these areas of law were written in response to civil rights protests. Uh, that, that fact notwithstanding, <laughs> we've seen that this application has not been one that has uh, upheld uh, racial justice or uh, been, uh, been used consistently <clears throat> to uh, even be on an equal footing between the actions of neo-Nazi protesters, the Proud Boys, and racial justice protesters in terms of um, some sort of measure of equality, let alone uplifting the movements that would seem to be 
providing an avenue for more speech. You know, I've, one of the things I talk about in um, my work is this understanding that for specifically for communities that are locked out of the political process historically, um, you know, we've seen that um, also by um, Laura, Laura Weinrib, one of your Harvard Law School scholars who wrote a wonderful book about the taming of free speech. We've seen that on questions of labor organizers and you know other groups that have historically been locked out of the political discussion who have been able to only get their voice out there through using free, the freedom of assembly First Amendment tool uh, to do so. And of course, civil rights activists and racial justice protesters are also another prime example of a group that is locked out of democracy and as a result of that, they've had to take to the streets to really get their political point across. So you would think that if the First Amendment was what we thought it was, then that would be one of the groups that we'd want to have their speech amplified. Uh, but unfortunately, the empirical evidence <laughs> suggests that that has not, they've been met with fierce, fierce uh, physical opposition and so much so, if you actually sit down and you you do the research and you look at the trajectory of that fierce opposition, you'll see that there is enough evidence to argue that it is indeed a, a racial project in the sense that it is upholding racial hierarchy because it is, it is locking the voice of racial justice protesters, locking them out of the political discussion um, at least through the avenue of uh, protest as political speech, whereas other groups that want to use protest as political speech are actually protected by the police and by these other uh, avenues of law, and, and they've been protected on that on those grounds. Think about the Nazis in Skokie, um, all the way to the Proud Boys. They've been protected on this grounds that well, they deserve to have their voices heard, but we didn't see that same discourse in Ferguson. We haven't seen we didn't see that in twenty twenty. Um, one thing that I I want to throw this link here into the chat. Uh, there is a group uh, that has put together a uh, protest law tracker, the International Center for Non Not for Profit Law. And if you track the protest laws around the country, you'll see that as opposed to uh, there being a movement to make it easier for people to engage in their protest rights um, in the aftermath of 2020. Is, uh, there's been an effort to push back, I mean, as you might expect, by uh, you know, political groups that oppose that particular type of speech. There's been, been an effort to push back and to create more laws to make it even harder for those groups to advocate. And we, we filed an amicus brief this past year on behalf of DeRay McKesson, Black Lives Matter protester, who was threatened with a, um, a negligence claim based on actions of people who um, you know, threw rocks during a protest. And because he tweeted about the protest, he was, he was found, they, they tried to make it the case that he would be found liable. So anyway, so, that, so my work, that I don't wanna just, I, as you can tell, I can talk about this all day, but as my work is really focused on this intersection between race and the First Amendment with the understanding that although racial justice movements have been central to the construction of the First Amendment freedom of assembly, uh, yet and still, even today in 2020 and 2021, we've seen the application of the First Amendment freedom of assembly happen in such a uh, racially unjust way that you can make the argument and defend the argument that it is a racial project, that it is a it is applied in a way to uphold racial hierarchy and the and the ability for people to engage in their free speech rights and as a result their ability to be part of the American political project. Thank you. I love so many parts of that. So it's difficult to sort of figure <laughs> out which uh, thread to pull on, but I wanna uh, I just really love I think both the way you talked you talked about sort of that that scholarship that empirical scholarship about the first amendment as a or as a racial project came out of watching sort of and seeing your own experiences and the experiences that sort of on the ground of like wait how does the how does 
do my experiences with these protests, how do and what I'm seeing at protests for racial justice map along onto or not map onto the claims that we're making about what the First Amendment is doing and the value of sort of speech and political participation. Um, there's this quote I really love from uh, Julia Hernandez, who's at uh, SUNY School of Law, um, where she sort of, I think for me, summarizes a lot of that kind of critical race theory, legal realist perspective when she says the, the law means what it means to those subject to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's like a really, I, I love that idea of focusing, or, I mean, I'm really, it's, it's awesome to hear how you were able to turn from your own experience to sort of doing that, be, having the time and space to work that out into scholarship and sort of producing more empirical work. Um, so thank you for that, it was incredible. Um, to change gears in direct substantive focus, but I don't think thematically. Um, Colin, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of um, your work kind of in this space. Um, more specifically, I know that one of the things you focus on is um, sort of surveillance of Muslim communities in the US. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that like the First Amendment also covers freedom of religion. And I don't want us to mere like to just sort of throw that to the side as we talk about speech and assembly. Although to be honest, um, IFRA's focus tends to be a little bit more on the speech stuff. So I wanna own what I know and don't know. Um, but yeah, Colin, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about both your work sort of on um, the First Amendment as a sort of racial or uh, anti-Muslim project, I guess, those are words, my words, not yours, um, but also sort of how that relates to the broader conversations that ha happen about surveillance and specifically like countering violent extremism programs um, within the US. Yeah, thanks, Kendra. And thanks to the initiative for holding this event. It's always a great joy to be in conversation with Professor Hansford. Um, on issues, uh, you know, he focuses on he focuses on and issues that definitely intersect with my work. So the, the genesis of, of my work really rises from um, the post 9-11 moment and the war on terror becoming, you know, this really transformative catalyst in racializing Muslim identity in very dynamic and nefarious ways for the first time in the United States. Um, and this, you know, rising legal but also political moderation of a free exercise of religion of Muslim populations that really converges and clashes with speech. Um, we, we do know those of us who study the first amendment that the, the, the tension and the dialectic between free exercise of religion, the religion clauses at large, assembly and free speech really converge and have a really in, you know, intimate relationship. And oftentimes communities of color and uh, clearly Muslims even when not speaking, speech is imputed upon them based on the way they exercise their religion. So to put that simply in theoretical terms, um, a, a Muslim subject who maximizes her, her or his religious identity in ways that are conservative or that you know sort of um, align with um, ominous caricatures of terrorist identity, the state presumes specific political speech coming from them even when they aren't speaking. Right, so a Muslim woman who wears the, the Islamic face covering, the niqab, or a Muslim man who dons a really long beard, traditional clothing, without uttering a single word when walking into a space, uh, onlookers, specifically surveillers, and Kendra, you mentioned counter-radicalization policing, which I'm happy to talk about uh, more specifically in a bit. Um, so informants, uh, FBI, local law enforcement, by virtue of viewing the individual in that light, will presume that he or she um, is engaging in specific forms of political speech that are um, sort of aligned with uh, state percep uh, perceptions and presumptions of terrorism. So the connections between free exercise of religion and speech are really key. Um, and really, you know, again, they, they commenced after the 9-11 moment and the sort of new, uh, you know, grand sort of American narrative of good and bad Muslims. Uh, Texas law professor uh, Karen Engel wrote a great uh, article, law review article, I think it was published in the uh, Colorado Law Review called Good Muslims, Bad Muslims, where the post 9-11 moment uh, sort of became, um, you saw the rise of this new sort of speech binary where Muslims who engage in, in specific forms of political speech, um, speech for instance that um, you know endorsed the war on terror, or sort of um, you know, endorsed or confirmed racial profiling and religious profiling of Muslim communities, Muslims who engaged in patriotic acts like you know, putting a flag up on their porch, um, you're rising up for the national anthem, that kind of thing. 
Um, that kind of political speech and political expression would essentially temper the state's perception that those individuals would um, could be could be or, sh or uh, could be terrorists, right? So that kind of political performance and speech allayed the state's uh, fears that individuals who engaged in that kind of expression were terrorists. However, on the other side, if you were somebody like me or like Justin, um, who was engaged in sort of critical advocacy activism. Um, that was questioning state policy, um, individuals who were uh, demonstrating the religious piety uh, through uh, visible signals or symbols like the hijab or, you know, a beard, so on and so forth. That kind of activity would, quote unquote, be dubbed bad Muslim identity that would invite uh, very robust and pernicious forms of surveillance into that individual's life. So you saw the rise of, I mean, in post 9-11, obviously you saw the, the establishment of the modern uh, surveillance state with the uh, creation of the Department of Homeland Security, enactment of strident policy like the Patriot Act, um, other policies that sort of supplement alongside uh, the Patriot Act. But in my opinion, you saw the rise of the most nefarious form of surveillance in um, modern American history with counter-radicalization policing, which ironically enough is established by the Obama administration and is based off, based off two things. So, you know, a connection with what Justin was mentioning earlier, even before the NYPD spying on Muslims program that was seated in 2002, I believe, uh, COINTELPRO, right? So the program that was established by J. Edgar Hoover in the 60s, which seated informants, not only to surveil, and this is one sort of misnomer where we sort of look at counter-radicalization in very myopic terms, that the objective is in the short term to surveil Black, Muslim, and dissident communities. But the ultimate objective is, is far more devastating than that, right? The real clear objective of the state is to destroy these communities. And we saw the destruction through surveillance uh, of organizations like the Black Panther Party. We saw the destruction uh, of different segments of the Nation of Islam, uh, the Brown Berets, uh, Puerto Rican and Latinx activi uh, activist movements in places like New York City. And that was the uh, that was the genuine ultimate objective of counter radicalization was to bring down segments of the Muslim community that the state believed to be too conservative, too dissident, uh, too activist in nature um, as a way to sort of, you know, fight and counter terror. So, you know, again, not to I don't want to rain on anybody's sort of political parade, but this happened under a Democratic administration and in my estimation is going to happen again. Um, with uh, the coming of the Biden administration. So we'll see a shift from explicit Islamophobia is what I call it with the Trump administration to more latent Islamophobia or structural Islamophobia, which is advanced by these sorts of surveillance programs um, that the Democratic Party has been very keen uh, and effective in spearheading. So I'll close with this note. When, uh, when Justin says very incisively that the First Amendment is a racial project, that definitely echoes for the broader Muslim population. And one thing I, you know, I talk about often in my work is not to think about the Muslim and the Black communities as distinct populations. There's really intimate overlap. But, um, you know, obviously, the biggest plurality of the Muslim population remains Black. Justin and I have talked about how distinct surveillance programs today um, black identity extremism, counter-radicalization actually uh, work symbiotically to police Black and Muslim populations. So uh, the reason I'm really happy to have Justin in this conversation is that his work doesn't only stand alongside my work, they converge really dynamically to victimize our communities in very destructive ways. And uh, they're both racial projects uh, that work in synchrony. Thank you. Again, so many different threads um, threads to pull on. I think two things I'm really struck by about, about your comments, Khalid. One is the way in which that sort of good, good Muslim, bad Muslim dichotomy that you're describing um, sort of aligns. Uh, I've been reading a lot of Foucault lately, so you're just going to have to forgive me for like oh, one second, <laughs> uh, which is to say that like, uh, um, you know, Foucault talks a lot about sort of surveillance with the uh, the core goal of being like internalized discipline rather than sort of like surveillance, uh, like the idea of uh, surveillance eventually resulting in people disciplining, the subject disciplining themselves. And I really, when you talk about sort of the way in which um, anti-Muslim surveillance operates within the US and that good, good Muslim, bad Muslim dichotomy, what I'm hearing is also the ways in which 
particular acts of surveillance um, may end up with communities both surveilling themselves, but also disciplining themselves, right? And how that can be in some ways, um, it's, it's a scary long-term development because you may no longer need the full external surveillance apparatus once people start engaging in self-discipline. Anyway, okay, brief side note about Foucault, we're now gonna go back to the law, um, which is to say, uh, I think the other point Colin, that you brought up that I think is really important to talk about is the way in which sometimes we talk about surveillance as if that was the end goal. Right, that like, oh, like they're engaged in surveillance of these communities. Well, that's not the end goal, right? Like the, you know, the destruction of the community or, you know, suppression of particular forms of speech or even thinking, right, is much more the actual end result of the surveillance. The surveillance is a, a means to an end. Justin, I saw that you are unmuted. So if you want to jump in and correct my misunderstandings of Foucault. Oh, no. <laughs> I was going to build up because I had ideas just filling my head when you were talking about that. Um, in Ferguson, and even even now in 2020, in the Floyd protests, you've seen uh, arrests and, and charges and the desire to, as you, you may see in the protest law tracker, the desire to create a felony regime. And oftentimes what ends up happening is in the plea bargaining stage, uh, there's a agreement that, well, uh, we're going to let you stay out of jail as long as you agree not to protest anymore. And, and uh, that has been a very explicit use of the law to stifle speech. Uh, but, you know, as, the, as you said, there's also the implicit use of the law as an intimid, intimidation uh, to keep people from engaging in this type of speech, which has, uh, you know, has always been the case. I think so my earlier work on Marcus Garvey and um, COINTELPRO and all these different processes that uh, it was the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover at that time, all those processes, processes were made uh, usable on the ground that these people were dangerous. And uh, so the, whether it's uh, political speech that is not favored because it's dangerous, whether it's uh, racial identities and really political identities that are made to be seen as dangerous. Once you allow the, the government through whatever mechanisms that it's trying to use, surveillance or you know charges, felony charges, or uh, even just aggressive policing and tanks and tear gas and the, the threat of physically harming a person or their family if they're out there with their kids, but the, th the threat of physical harm, whatever tools that the law uses uh, to try to stifle these, the speech, it, it never says that we're trying to stifle speech, right? It's always saying that we have some other uh, justifiable reason for this. And it's really not just justifiable, but it's an urgent reason. Like, you know, we're going to be in danger. You know, these, you know, these Muslims are going to be, you know, they're going to be terrorists. These black people, um, you know, they're, they're, caught up with socialism, if, uh, Dr. King, of course, <laughs> was, the, was part of that, you know, but even Garvey, the Garvey movement, even at that point also was accused of socialism. And you see that even now Black Lives Matter is seen as, you know, socialist. So, that, so there's always a, a uh, another justification that is used. Um, and, and so in that sense, it's very interesting to think about the First Amendment's role and uh, the, how easy it is to create a fig leaf to make people ignore the fact that the First Amendment is being suppressed and just look look the other way. And I think that's that's one of the problems with the First Amendment is, um, you know, how strongly are we going to stand up for it? And that's, you know, and that's really the, the question is oftentimes juxtaposed with this idea that, well, we have to balance public safety with the right to engage in free speech and freedom of assembly. And there's a, this intricate balance, like these two things are separate and you have to balance one or the other. You have to sacrifice a bit of one to get the other. Um, but uh, you know, that's, that, maybe that dichotomy itself is one of the false dichotomies that we need to interrogate. Yeah, I think that you know, two things strike me there. One is the question of like, who, who is safe in public Yep. under the existing regime, right? Like, you know, and the answer is not usually the people who are protesting in the first place. Uh, but I think the other thing that sort of strikes 
needs there is the way in which theoretically, to your, to your point, Justin, earlier, theoretically, we do have First Amendment tools that are meant to deal with laws that incidentally burden speech, right? You know, we can have this whole conversation about burning draft cards and, you know, the, the, those First Amendment tests, but somehow, much like uh, we only recognize prior restraint if it liter literally comes labeled as prior restraint, mm -hmm. right? Like, but don't get me started. Um, the, uh, um, you know, labels like even something like counter -viol countering violent extremism, which I just, which I used and I shouldn't have, right? Uh, or the black identity extremist label um, that you two have written about are sort of deployed to uh, move things that would otherwise clearly be government suppression of speech or government interference with people's speech rights into a different category that of like anti-terrorism or public safety. And I think that like, it's really, you know, it's valuable just even to reflect on how the language that like is used to describe these programs, it is in some ways endemic of our particular viewpoint about what they're doing that is, well, A, not necessarily evidence-based, but B, uh, you know, forecloses the possibility of First Amendment challenges. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So I wanna, if, Kala, do you have any thoughts on this before we sort of jump to, because I want to talk about hate speech for a hot second, because it's not going to be a conversation about race in the First Amendment unless we, you have to at least answer one question about hate speech, but I hope, I hope it's a good one. Uh, but Khaled, any like thoughts on the sort of um, extremist language or this kind of uh, issue of kind of uh, <laughs> accidental suppression of speech before we, before we move on? Yeah, I'm, re I'm really glad you brought up Foucault, right? So Foucault has this beautiful quote where he says that in, and he calls it the disciplinary society that we're in, right? So where the, that the subject becomes the principle of her own subjugation, which really highlights, you know, kind of a third level of, of, of speech regulation that we seldom talk about, right? We talk about legal uh, regulation and moderation. We talk about political moderation, but there's a third dimension that's really salient with Muslim and Black uh, populations, which is you know, self-moderation, right? The idea that should I put up this tweet? Should I go to this Black Lives Matter movement? Um, should I wear my hair in this way? Should I don the hijab? So this sort of perpetual negotiation of identity performance and identity expression, which scholars like Nancy Leong and Devin Carvato have written about for years, um, is sort of this, this unseen third dimension of speech regulation that is more than chilling effect. We talk about it, you know, oftentimes very narrowly as chilling effect, but to me, it's a lot more intrusive than just chilling effect because it's burdening these um, stigmatized communities to have to entirely redo their identities and perpetually moderate their genuine routine daily expression and activity, um, which can be really difficult. Yeah, so Foucault is, you said Foucault as if he were separate from the law, but in this respect, <laughs> he lives uh, within the I'm law. I'm just gonna take, I'm gonna take uh, <laughs> and bank the one person who has ever said, I'm so glad you brought up Foucault um, <laughs> and just like put that, put that, put that aside for later. So thank you. If we get nothing out of this, else out of this, know that I am reassured. Uh, Justin, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you unmuted, so I wasn't sure if you oh, had no, something that's, you wanted that's to say. Cool. So, you know, I want to, <laughs> I'm going to pose a hate speech question that is something I personally struggle with. So I'm curious as to your thoughts and for people who are kind of mystified by my sort of joking reference to talking about hate speech, part of what I'm drawing on is the history of critical race theorists engaging very in thoughtful ways with the First Amendment sort of uh, um, protection of hate speech, you know, I don't want to say starting with, but prominently with words that wound, which is a um, collection of essays by authors, including um, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who uh, sort of engage with this question of like, okay, should the First Amendment protect hate speech and how, how, how does that work and what's missing here from these stories? Um, Mari Matsuda, there are others, I could pull the full list and every one of them would just be as amazing as Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, so, but something I, part of why I bring this up is to say that there have been, I think, robust critiques of the idea of including hate, of protecting, um, removing hate speech from First Amendment protections from those on the left, um, who would also probably consider themselves quite engaged with critical race theory, 
from the, based on the idea that potential criminalization of hate speech might increase the tools available to like a racist carceral system. So, you know, Dean Spade has made this critique among others. Um, and, and his particular focus is on the context of hate crime legislation that I think the critique holds. So I'd be curious as to how either of you think about sort of how we might think about increased regulation of hate speech or anti-racist or anti-Islamophobic or anti-Islamophobic, Islamophobic slurs um, in the context of car a sort of racist carceral system that historically has been an oppressive force in the lives of black folks, Muslim folks, black Muslim folks, you know, and all kinds of folks from marginalized backgrounds. So that's the, the small question I'll tee up for whichever one of you wants to tackle it first. I can start off. There's a, there is a case, and I'm also gonna put another link in the chat. There's a case that the Lawyers Committee uh, for Civil Rights was involved in uh, recently that, uh, in, that was a case where there was a young black woman who was a student at American University. She won the election for student body president. And uh, then there was a campaign led by the Daily Stormer, which was a uh, white supremacist website to harass her and threaten her, threaten it, and they actually were able to, in some way, shape or form, create this, uh, uh, I forget what the term is, but they, they were able to get more and more people to uh, troll her on social media and threaten her. So it wasn't just that organization itself, but they were getting more people as well. So it was a classic example of um, hate speech on the grounds of race, really reaching a fever point to the extent that she didn't feel safe on her campus. And the, a lawsuit was brought um, by the lawyers committee, you can see on the grounds that uh, the online trolling constituted interference with her opportunity for equal enjoyment of public accommodations. And, and they were able to obtain $700,000 in damages and we're able to really harm the Daily, Daily Stormer to the point where I'm not even sure if it still exists on the grounds of, that the hate speech made her feel unsafe because of the specific threats made her feel unsafe in her uh, attempt to use the campus. So it, it, it was, I thought it was very interesting because it did show that uh, there is certainly there are non-carceral ways to move forward. I mean, the, some of the scholarship has proposed in the past uh, a possible tort for hate speech, as opposed to uh, thinking about, um, you know, increased hate crime legislation, which would, which would, a tort or uh, a process like this would be something that could be in line with abolitionist politics. I think that it's a, it is a, it's an interesting way to approach the issue. You know, I, we, we get confused because, you know, they, this, there's this whole narrative around political correctness right now that's been you know, it's, it's a horrible uh, poisoning of the discourse where people create this marketplace of ideas narrative and sort of have uh, uh, tried to create more space for hate speech online. We've, and we've all seen it and we've seen it grow, um, not just in the comment sections, but now, you know, we see it everywhere. And, uh, you know, this idea that, and, and, and where's that wound is something that's a, it's a great, uh, a great uh, book. And then there was a follow-up called Understanding Words That Wound um, that Delgado and Stefankic, I think, were involved in writing. But there's been scholarship which has actually shown the, the, the physical toll, the psychological toll, um, all of the different harms that accrue from hate speech on communities of color. And it, it has always been a problematic element of First Amendment discourse to and, and you know, I'm going to have to shout out the ACLU, even though they do great work. Historically, they've been, they've taken the position that you know we have to have this in order for first the First Amendment to continue to protect us and do all these great things for us to be able to take to the streets. We have to sort of suck it up and and be willing to endure hate speech at the same time because that's the deal that we're making. That's sort of the exchange that has to happen. And and unfortunately that sort of First Amendment fundamentalism still is the, the normative understanding of the First Amendment in liberal circles. And I think that 
it's important for us to start to interrogate that again, uh, thinking about it from a legal realist outcome-based perspective, understanding the harms that are taking place and understanding that, you know, as other as, and as the scholarship will tell you, there are other countries around the world that take different approaches to free speech and hate speech. And those societies have not fallen apart, have fallen into authoritarianism, probably could make the argument that we are closer to authoritarianism than, you know, most other countries that regulate hate speech in, uh, in many parts of the world. And that uh, regulate it through fines and other types of tools that don't rely specifically on carceral options. So I, I think there's a lot, there's a long way for us to go on that, on the hate speech question. Um, I think that there's, we're just beginning to use these other tools. I'm, ex I'm excited about the lawyers committee's engagement here. And it, I think it does move, move us a, li a little bit closer to the possibility of a tort against hate speech. Yeah, I think um, it's such a good point, right? The sort of pre the presentment of kind of it uh, as an either or either, you know, like this sort of false dichotomy of like either, you know, hate speech is criminalized or, you know, or hate speech is entirely protected under the First Amendment, uh, even uh, like is a is a good thing to push back on. I also, Justin, just want to sort of tell a very brief anecdote about your point about other countries. So I, I've taught um, a kind of, I've taught a couple of sort of critical or First Amendment, like new issues in First Amendment classes. And every time I teach it, there's at least one LLM who's like, uh, so LLMs are international students, uh, often at, uh, at at Harvard Law School, um, who's like, yeah, we ban hate speech in my country and it all seems to be going fine, um, which I think is a very useful, especially for U United States JD students and law students to hear because, Justin, to your point about that kind of First Amendment fundamentalism. Um, Khaled, I want to make sure you have a chance to share thoughts, <laughs> thoughts on this question or push back on the framing of this question. You've always appreciated um, before we before I hop to the next topic. No, I'll, I'll just I'll just talk briefly about so when the question was posed, I thought about speech on campus, right? So you had the you know sort of this big, you know this this hysteria around um, you know, the invitation of really radical right speakers a couple of years ago, uh, people like Milo Yiannopoulos and um, not even right individuals on people like Bill Maher, for instance, and a whole wide range of different speakers were being invited to campuses and. Um, movements on the left, but also student movements on the right, pushing hate speech as a way to sort of um, preempt them from speaking. And I think that um, what you and Justin talked about, this idea of free speech fundamentalism that oftentimes misses the mark is with regard to institutional power, right? So oftentimes when it's elements on the right that want to engage in political speech that feels like hate speech and speech that you know, was imminently tied to the prospect of violence against black, uh, undocumented sexual minority group students and so on and so forth, um, being analogized or likened to hate speech from left, uh, leftist based movements is um, the right overwhelmingly with, especially with regard to the university space, um, has the real history and present of institutional power backing them. Right, which isn't the case for student movements on uh, the left, especially uh, student movements of color on the left. Um, so when I think about speech broadly and also uh, political speech, which obviously you know, is intimately tied to hate speeches, I try to gauge how much power is behind the speech. And oftentimes that variable can determine the likelihood of, of violence. Give you a quick example. So I taught at the University of Arkansas for, for a couple of years, which has a, uh, a, a very big uh, Greek element. And some of the, uh, the, the Greek um, fraternity and sorority element has interesting ties to uh, former slavery, uh, racist sort of traditions in the deep South. Uh, many of them tend to be conservative or libertarian. So when, when they put on events that lean toward the right in a place like Arkansas, where students of color are very few and far, uh, far between, especially Muslim and immigrant students, um, there's a real history and institutional backing of power behind those events that can stir up different factions of the student body that can make life very scary for the handful of black, Muslim, Latinx, and sexual minority students on those campuses. So I really appreciate the sort of theoretical conversation about sort of maintaining and the difficulty of finding a bright line rule for moderating, for moderating 
political speech. But like Justin says, it's important to have sort of the, the real politic conversation with how protecting speech symmetrically on both sides oftentimes only leads to victimization of vulnerable communities um, that don't have that institutional backing of power that elements on the right typically have. I love, I'm so glad you made that point because I think one thing that historically uh, First Amendment doctrine is not good at doing at all is considering those kinds of power differential questions, right? We often don't, uh, you know, doctrinally are, you know, lawyers or law students or judges are encouraged to think about those as kind of about questions about really who holds power and who holds alternate uh, access to alternate means of speech. Like all of that is kind of considered beside the point unless maybe you're in time, place and manner restrictions, maybe. But like, so I think call it the point about like, okay, like, wait, hold on. Like what's the actual power structure like? Like what is the actual situation like is so important to think about. And I think that that you know, it speaks to the kind of question of like looking at the really what's happening on the gr ground of critical race theory that critical race theory does as we were going to earlier, rather than sort of just imagining that this is a process of articulating those beautiful bright line rule about what constitutes hate speech and what doesn't that we can possibly imagine, right? It, you know, much more of our question is about, all right, what is this doing in the world? Um, so I promised I'd take questions from the audience and I have so many questions. Um, so we're gonna, I'm gonna engage in a balancing test of those two, um, uh, two, different, uh, two different issues um, and sort of combine uh, Bao Bao Zhang's question and one of mine, which is, I'd be curious to think about sort of like either, you know, Bao Bao asks, how has the pandemic changed your thinking about freedom assembly or state surveillance? Um, I'm gonna assume that it has at least a little, uh, but maybe it hasn't. Um, but I'd also be curious if I can combine this question with like sort of what are y'all thinking about now? Like what's on what's on your mind? What's sort of your what what's the what are the questions that you're kind of wrangling with or the things that you're focusing on or paying paying attention to? Well, I can one thing that I, that is on my mind is the uh, well there there are a couple of cases. There's a case in California recently where a, um, a Black Lives Matter sign or mural, excuse me, Black Lives Matter mural was defaced and uh, it was done on video. And uh, there was a uh, hate crime enhancement brought against this, this couple. And their defense has been that, um, well, what they were doing by defacing this Black Lives Matter sign was not, it was not a race-based uh, action. It was, it was about the political position of Black Lives Matter as a political organization. And so this was, this would be uh, a political uh, action and should be protected. And we've also, this has also come up around the country um, in situations where people are being tried, oftentimes protesters are being tried for, uh, you know, trespass or even some more serious sort of protest related uh, uh, charges. And uh, there have been efforts to strike jurors who um, acknowledge that they support Black Lives Matter. Um, and this, the, the question at, at hand is, was Black Lives Matter is, is your affiliation with Black Lives Matter a racial affiliation or is it a political affiliation? In other words, should Batson be involved if you're stri striking jurors for saying that they support Black Lives Matter? Will it be, is, it a, is it a race based uh, elimination of that juror from the juror from the pool, or is it based on political views? And then same thing with this this uh, family or th this couple in California. Is this is there a opposition to Black Lives Matter political or is it racial? with this idea that if it's political, then it should be much more protected and they should be able to speak out against anything Black Lives Matter related as violent as they want to. And it's not, it should not be seen as a racist uh, hate speech action. It's just, it's just a political difference. And I think that's really, that's one of those things that is, is one of those slippery slope arguments because if you do allow uh, opposition to people <laughs> to be seen as a, to be framed as political and therefore always never 
to be framed as any sort of racial, you know, any sort of racially related outburst, um, then why not? Why not just ascribe political views to? And I'm sure people do that. They they say, well, I don't I don't oppose uh, Muslims because of their religion. I oppose them because of terrorism or some, something ridiculous like that, right? And and, and so it's it's, a, it's laughable when it's in the discourse when it's in on the media, but it, unfortunately, these are now becoming arguments that are being made in the court, and we don't know what the courts are going to say to this yet. We don't we don't know yet where courts are coming down on this question of whether opposition to Black Lives Matter signage or anything is uh, race based hate speech or whether it's purely political in nature. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested and I'm a bit worried about how that's going to play out. And uh, my anticipation is that it's gonna be different in different jurisdictions. Uh, but we do need to start to think about how that, that seems to be the current framing of folks who are opposing these movements to say that, well, we're not, we're not really opposing you on your identity, we're opposing you on our understanding or stereotype <laughs> of, what, what, of the political positions that people of your identity hold. So that's what's one thing that's on my mind right now. Khaled, before I turn to you, one brief reaction, Justin, which is it really deeply reminds me of conversations around religious freedom and queerness um, and sort of use it, the use of uh, religious freedom excuses to justify uh, discrimination against like queer and trans folks. And I think, you know, um, one, one thing I always think about in that context is, um, I'm forgetting the name of the case. It was embarrassing. Uh, in, um, that, you know, you actually see, uh, historically in, uh, opposition to the Civil Rights Act, um, claims that, you know, treating Black folks equally to white folks was against folks' religion. I think the case is Piggy Park Enterprises. Um, and the Supreme Court just, and the courts in that, in, in the 1960s, just kind of just were like, nope, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna engage with that question. Like, we're just, we're just gonna, uh, no, uh, there's a lot going on here and we don't wanna deal with that. And so in some ways, Justin, to your point about like, how are courts going to answer this question? Like part of it is, you know, one of the, one of the things I always think about is sort of how seriously do courts take those kinds of, this kind, these kinds of claims? you know, and how, you know, how much are they, are judges persuaded by this, this attempt at drawing distinctions between sort of racist, um, racist speech and certain kinds of political speech. And, you know, honestly, I got to admit, given the current makeup of the judiciary, that doesn't make me feel like a good thing to reach for. But it is one of those sort of interesting questions about like, it, it, how do judges engage with this? Yeah, and really, and really briefly, the one thing that's interesting, just this, I think this may be over the Christmas holiday, there was a judge in Virginia who took down the, pic, the pictures of the former judges. And I think there's an article about this in the New York Times, uh, Virginia courtroom, state courtroom, all of these judges, white judges. And uh, the, the ju the, one of the litigants was arguing that this was racially biased and intimidating because it sent this message that this was a white court for white people. And the judge actually took down the paint, paintings and said that, you know, the, the, in the cost benefit analysis, you know, it doesn't, there's no, not enough benefit to justify the cost and that this did uh, have this message. And, as, and he used as a basis for that, his reading of uh, this this uh, novel by this uh, now I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed. But I'm reading the name of this book, but this this guy who was wrongfully incarcerated um, and uh, who wrote this book recently, talking about how when he was a defendant, he saw all these white judges' pictures in the courtroom, and he knew that this, that he was going to lose. And you know, it may not be that it's just a, the whiteness of the judges. Also, this is Virginia. Most of those judges going back to, to the 18th century, many, many of them were enslavers or slave owners or segregationists as well. But the, the acknowledgement of the messages that are being sent by some of the elements that are present in the courtroom, I thought that was fascinating that the judge actually was listening 
to that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna find the name of that book that the judge referenced so I can put that into somebody tell the Yale Law School people because I don't know if you've ever been in oh. one of the classrooms at Yale Law School. Uh, <laughs> but there's like it's just like white dudes uh, portraits on every wall. Anyway, we have a hundred questions. I still haven't let Khalid uh, sort of uh, speak to uh, what what he's thinking about these days, which is just clearly a sign we need to do another uh, follow-up conversation on this. Um, but Khalid, we have three more minutes. Um, so please feel free to uh, sort of talk about what you're thinking about, what's on your mind these days and bring us maybe home uh, home with any final thoughts you might have. And then I'll turn back to Justin and just close us off. And I'm sorry to everyone who asked great questions in the chat. Well, but, you know, fodder for a future conversation to be sure. Yeah, this has been a great conversation and so much to, to comment on. Really, really quick, I want to comment, Kendra, on a point you made. Um, it's about how the state and proxies to the state weaponize First Amendment liberties in ways that you know bludgeon the rights of uh, identity uh, minority identity-based groups, right? So you talked about RIFRA, uh, for instance, and the many religious freedom statutes being used to suppress um, um, sexual minority populations across the country. So th there's a reciprocal sort of discussion we're having with regard to how the state has been really clever um, in weaponizing uh, First Amendment liberties in ways to suppress already suppressed groups. What I'm working on, um, and uh, one of the reasons why I'm really excited to be working with the initiative is, um, which is really tied to the pandemic, right? So now, um, you know, activists and individuals can't go to public squares uh, and have to engage in political speech and assembly online, and typically on online platforms which are privately held, where, uh, you know, rights and liberty, liberties that were theoretically afforded in places like parks, sidewalks, roads aren't <laughs> afforded on places like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram so forth and so on, which is, is really concerning because obviously we have this um, prevailing era of surveillance capitalism where you have huge corporations uh, like Google, Twitter, Facebook, um, collecting our data, you know, and consuming our data in ways that maximize uh, their economic interests but then transfer that data to nefarious actors like the state. And these corporations are a lot more efficient, a lot more effective in surveilling us. And oftentimes we're surrendering the information in ways that hasn't been the case before. Um, that makes this new um, era and age of surveillance uh, far more frightening in many ways than it was in, in eras before, even though we're sort of living in this moment of you know, presumed racial progress in harmony. Um, so I'm thinking off, you know, I'm thinking a lot about how, um, you know, algorithmic policing, predictive policing, um, social media platforms uh, are, are becoming the lead actors in surveilling our speech assembly in free exercise of religion rights online, um, which, and obviously there's a, a monopoly online now because of uh, the pandemic and its negation of being able to engage in traditional forms of activism. Thank you. Um, so I see we're at 1 p.m. and I want to be respectful of our panelists' time, of our attendees' time, of our ASL interpreters and captioners' time. Um, so just join me uh, in virtually thanking Khalid and Justin, uh, Professor Beydoun and Professor Hansford um, for joining me in this conversation. I know I've had a blast. I hope that uh, hope that y'all have found it interesting and clearly just judging based on the number of open questions in chat, you know, met much to return to. Um, you know, the, uh, so thank you everyone um, for, for joining us. Um, and just a reminder, uh, Justin, did you want to mention that you're recruiting for an attorney? Oh, yes. Uh, so I'm looking for attorneys who are interested in doing First Amendment uh, defense of protesters on freedom of assembly uh, grounds. We have a uh, Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center here at Howard Law School, and we are hiring as soon as possible. We received a grant to, to help uh, hire someone who is interested in doing First Amendment and also environmental justice as well as uh, First Amendment litigation. So I, I'm going to put my email here in the chat uh, and feel free to give me a shout um, or um, reach out to uh, the university to find out more about this. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. And one more time, I'll just close by saying we're recruiting uh, for our current IFRA cohort. If you want to have, oops, uh, 
Justin, I think that just went to panelists. Oh, okay. um, if you want to have more conversations like this one, be part of uh, be part of sort of thinking about what the sort of cutting edge future of this work looks like and answer some of the hard questions that people posed in chat. Um, I hope you'll reach out to, to me, to the IFRA team, so Jazjad or Sybil, um, consider submitting an application if you're a law student. Um, but yeah, thank you so much everyone for your time um, and for joining us. Take care.